you know, you think about the art market, art as an asset class is $1.7 trillion, right? That's a number that's published by Deloitte, has been more or less confirmed by Sotheby's. Last year, $68 billion in art sold. So think of it as a couple percent turnover every year. Compare that to venture and private equity, which is $3.5 trillion. There's 6,000 firms that operate in venture, private equity, late stage buyout, whatever, that help people allocate to the asset class. In the art market, there's nobody. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone and welcome to another edition of Top Traders on Pluck, where today I'm joined by Scott Lin, who's the founder and CEO of Masterworks. And today we are really going to talk alternative investments. So first off, Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited about our conversation today because it's a new asset class for me and I think for many of our listeners. But I have a feeling that once we get started, it will be surprising to most of us how similarly you can think about investing in art compared to more traditional assets. So I want to kick off by kind of framing what we're going to talk about today and better understand your journey into the world of investing and specifically uh, how you came about choosing art as your focus area. So perhaps we can go back for a little bit and uh, see how it all began and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So, so thanks for having me. I, I guess my journey into the, into the art market is, is a little bit unique. So I, you know, I've been starting technology companies for the past 20 years, originally beginning in, in casual gaming and then moving into online advertising and then fintech. But also throughout that, that period of time, I've been collecting art. And the art market in the, I guess, the, the late, you know, the mid to late 90s was, was very different than it is today. The primary difference between the market back then compared to today is the internet didn't really exist. So there wasn't, there wasn't good data to analyze. So I, I guess qualitatively, when I think about the market back in, uh, in the mid 1990s, you had this, this core group of collectors who were passionate about the artists, they're passionate about cultural significance. And while those things still exist today, I think every collector who's buying multi-million dollar paintings is doing it with some lens of investment. And that's that's probably the the difference that's occurred over the over the past 20 years. And you know, we we always get questions from people like, you know, are aren't aren't ultra wealthy people just buying these paintings to hang on their wall because because they like them and there's there's no focus on investment. And you know, I would say I know very few people that are ultra wealthy have spent their entire life working very hard and buy, you know, one million dollar or ten million dollar or fifty million dollar paintings with, without thinking about it from from an investment perspective. Sure. I mean, we're going to get into, you know, a lot of the weeds of investing in art, but I want to explore the asset class itself for a little while. So maybe you can tell us about the, kind of the history of art as an asset class and how it's grown over the years and perhaps why it seems to be becoming more popular with investors these days. 
So the history of, of art is, is obviously one of the oldest asset classes there are. I use the statistic a lot with people and they don't, I think they don't, they don't totally recognize it in, until I say it, but Sotheby's, which just recently went, went private, uh, was the oldest company on the New York Stock Exchange, 275 years old. Uh, Christie's is, is roughly the same age. So there, there, there are two companies in America that are, that are two of the oldest companies there are. And, and art has been traded between ultra-wealthy families for literally centuries. So you, you have this asset class, which has been around for, for hundreds of years, but up until recently, I think people haven't, haven't fully appreciated the, the characteristics. Yeah, why do you think it's becoming more popular now? It's a good question. I, I mean, I, I think that, that we believe, and we, we have our research team sort of working on this question, but we, we do believe that art prices are correlated to the growth of the top 1%. So when you're investing in art today, you're, you're sort of buying a call option on the ultra wealthy. So if you believe that the, the top 1% are getting wealthier, I think you believe that that art prices are going up. So I think that dynamic alone has, has created more activity in the art market. And then I also think that since, since roughly half of the art market trades at public auction, you, you now today have a data set which you can go back decades and analyze the performance of the asset class and really conclude that it is a strategic asset class. And, and to us, strategic asset class just very simply means an asset class that beats inflation or an asset class that's uncorrelated. And, and I think up until the last 10 years, there, there probably hasn't been sufficient data or, or maybe just sufficient research to conclude that. Yeah, no, and I, I, we may come back to that point uh, a little bit later as well. I also wanted to sort of, again, kind of big picture stuff, and before we get into sort of the nitty gritty of things, is just in terms of sort of the experience of, of returns and risk in this asset class. How do people kind of get their head around that when, when they start thinking about art as an investing uh, opportunity? You know, I think the the way that, that we analyze the market is very similar to how many investors would think about real estate. So we've done a lot of work to understand how particular assets are performed over time. And some of, some of your listeners may be familiar with like how Case Shiller was constructed for real estate. So we look at individual paintings that have been purchased and then subsequently sold in the art market, how much money was made or lost on each of those transactions. And we use that to, to construct indexes on the art market overall or on particular segments of the art market. And then we use those indexes to inform how we think about returns or how we think about correlation. So it's frankly, you know, when we, when we think about analyzing the asset class, it's very typical to how you would analyze any other asset class. And since you come from the tech world, I can't help not asking you, I mean, when you've met investors from that world and now you meet investors uh, looking to invest in art, I mean, are they kind of in a, in a weird way looking for the same things I mean, our, our investors at Masterworks are, you know, prototypical investors. I mean, they're, they're looking for uncorrelated returns. I, I would love to say that, that most of our investors care about cultural significance. They really don't. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're really just looking for another way to diversify a portfolio and generate returns. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about art as an asset class. I mean, you, talked, you mentioned a little bit about sort of the data uh, side of things. I mean, how long can you actually go back and find what, let's call it reliable data to make sense of 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 these returns and the characteristics of of that market you can you can go back probably close to close to 100 years obviously the reliability of that data is is questionable the further you go back in time uh, most of our data sets begin 
in the 50s and 60s. You know, when you, when you think about the market high level, last year, $68 billion in art sold. Half of that $68 billion was at public auction, and then half of that sold privately. So we really only have good, reliable data on half of the market. The, the private market data is very unreliable. So the public auction segment is controlled, at least in the U.S. and Western Europe, by three major auction houses. So it's not that difficult to collect. You know, there haven't been that many firms that have done it historically, but, but the data is there if you, if you want to analyze it. Yeah. And and I think you already mentioned that you actually have to then go and build your own indices uh, to to track that data. It's not in a, no one else offers that as a as a service. It's really crazy. I mean, I, the thing that amazes me about the art market is is just how you know, it's it's still very much in in its infancy. Um you know, there haven't been a lot of research groups formed to analyze the asset class. Frankly, our research team is is the best by far at understanding returns in the art market. There's a there's been a bunch of research projects to understand just total transaction volume, total size of the asset class, you know, how many galleries operate in the art market, how many artists uh, constitute the, you know, a certain portion of the market, but there really there really haven't been research teams formed to understand returns. I, I think that the very first person to analyze it is a guy named Mike Moses, who was an advisor of ours, and Mike started analyzing returns in the art market in the 1990s, which is crazy, right? I mean, you have an asset class that's been around for hundreds of years, and the first time anyone's really studied returns was in the 1990s. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what about when you look back on on the history of the data that you have access to? What does the growth look like? Some, as you say, I mean, some asset classes are really just coming into the frame now and starting to take off, even though they might be old. But what about art in itself? What's the kind of the growth of that? Has it been steady or is it... It depends on the segment you analyze, like like any other okay. asset class. So if you if you look at the top 100 artists by transaction volume, and these are these are household name artists like Picasso, Basquiat, Warhol, etc. That top 100 segment, um, which constitutes 64% of the art market, by the way, we can talk about that separately. Right. Uh, sure. But that top 100 segment has outperformed the S and P by by roughly 180% from 2000 through 2019. So. From a returns perspective, it's it's very interesting. You know, we did the first correlation analysis with Citigroup on the asset class at the end of 2019 and concluded that essentially it's an uncorrelated asset class. I think the highest correlation, interestingly, is between art and cash at roughly 0.3. The correlation between art and the S&P is roughly 0.14. The challenge with art, I think, I think for for most investors, is that it's an illiquid asset class. So you have to be comfortable with with holding that investment for some period of time to to really realize returns. Yeah. Well, luckily, most investors tell us when they invest, oh, yeah, we're long term. And that is, of course, until the day they decide, no, we're not long term anymore. <laughs> but uh, but there we are. I want you to describe, and I think you touched upon it a little bit with the ultra high net worth individuals, but I actually want to dis- want you to describe what you see as this kind of the key macro drivers for art as an asset class. Yeah, there's two things that I that I think are very interesting. So one is, as I mentioned, I would think of investing in art as as a call option on the ultra wealthy. So if you believe globally that the top one percent are, are are getting wealthier, then you can probably believe that art prices are going up. And and when I say globally, it is important to understand that the biggest concentration in the art market today is the United States with with roughly 25% of the market. So art is a is somewhat of a currency neutral asset. You can buy a painting in the US, you can take it to China and you can sell it. 
So it is, we believe, correlated to, to growth in the global top 1%. The second thing that's really fascinating, and I, and I think this is unique to art compared to any other asset class, is that you have a continuously shrinking supply. So when an artist makes a number of paintings in their lifetime, at some point they pass away, and those paintings go into collectors' hands or they go into institutions or museums. As collectors pass away, they usually donate those works. So, you know, the, the best example qualitatively um, that I like to use is, is Jackson Pollock. So many, many of your listeners are probably familiar with these drip paintings that he did in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, which are kind of icons of American art history. And some of those paintings have sold for, for excess of $100 million. But what's happened in today's world is that most of those paintings are now in institutions. There's 23 drip paintings left in private collections. Out of those 23, there's only a couple that we frankly would consider A examples. Most of them are B examples or C examples, but they still sell for 20 or $30 million simply because there's nothing else left. So that, that continuously decreasing supply um, of available work from, from what are regarded as culturally significant or historically important artists definitely continues to, to drive price pressure over time. Now, you talked a little bit about the return profile. You mentioned that in comparison to, say, the S&P. So the flip side of, of the returns is, of course, risk. How do, you, how, sh- how do you even think about kind of risk associated with the returns of art? We think about risk as, as you would think about risk at any other asset class, which is simply standard deviation of return. So when we're bringing offerings onto the Masterworks platform, we're generally looking at the individual artist market. What has the artist market returned historically? What has been the standard deviation in return for that artist market? And then and effectively, what is the risk-adjusted return or what your listeners would think of as a sharp ratio? And what you see is that different artists have, have very different uh, standard deviations in return. So one of the, the best um, or the lowest, I guess, standard deviations in return is actually uh, Claude Monet, and Monet, I think last year, sold something around $400 million in art. So if you assume that 3% or 4% of his total market sold last year, you can think of him as kind of a multi-billion dollar market cap artist. And his standard deviation in return was, was roughly 6%, if I recall correctly. So his, his risk-adjusted return is very good because his overall returns are, are very predictable. Now, Monet actually has one of the lowest returns of any artist we track, right? I think his absolute return is something like... 7% a year from an artist market perspective. But his risk-adjusted return is, is very good because it's just so predictable. And Monet's been selling work for over 100 years now. Yeah, no, I love the way that you kind of take this non-traditional asset class and you turn it into kind of the speak that we like uh, on this <laughs> podcast. So I'm going to stick with that for a little while longer. And I'm going to talk about something that comes up quite a lot. And that is uh, the word crisis alpha, meaning something where, you know, how does this uh, asset class perform when uh, the rest of the world is having a difficult time, mainly an equity crisis. So uh, what's uh, what, what's your experience when it comes to, uh, and I know it, it plays part of the correlation argument, of course, but what, what does the actual hard facts look like when we look at the crisis period that we all know and, and how art, you know, handle those? Yeah, so this, this is a fun story. So we, so, you know, for the past couple of years, we, we've been touting this idea that, that art is an uncorrelated asset class. And we, we have pressure tested that by analyzing prior financial crises, uh, beginning with the dot-com bubble bursting and in 2000, and then the uh, the 0809 crisis, 
Uh, interestingly, you know, the, the art market declined in 2016. Uh, the best guess as to why is Brexit and capital controls in China. So those were sort of the three periods that we looked at. And, and what we found is that when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, our prices actually increased. In 08, 09, it had the biggest correlation ever to, to the S&P. And I think that correlation was something like 0.4. And then in, in 2016, when public, when public equities did very well, uh, the art market actually actually declined for the for those reasons I mentioned. So you know we concluded effectively that looking at the correlation data and also looking at those those three periods of time, it was an uncorrelated asset class. Now, you know this is this is after 2016, and we didn't really have a proof point yet. So we so we we published research on this, and we we thought it was right, and we hoped it was right, and then Corona happened. So so Corona was the. Uh, the good, the good test of that, and I, you know, I, I, was, I continue to say that it was an uncorrelated asset class. I believed it was uncorrelated, but but the truth is, I was sort of sitting in the back room hoping that when when auction sales started happening again, the prices <laughs> didn't collapse. And and what we found, thankfully, is that is that prices didn't collapse. So what we saw in June of of this year, sort of right in you know the middle of Corona, as, as things start started happening again was that 20, 22 artists set price records. Prices continued to go up. There, there was no impact on the market whatsoever that, that we could tell. And I think for better or for worse, that, that just continues to, to speak to the growth in the top 1%. You know, while, while we are living in a world today where it feels like there's, there's two different economies, you know, public equities and then sort of the, the real economy, we don't see the top 1% really experiencing that. So the, the behavior hasn't changed from what we can tell. Sure. So you might be one of few business owners who actually wouldn't mind the second wave, even though it's politically <laughs> completely incorrect to say that. But uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't, I can't comment on that. <laughs> no, that's right, that's right. Now, so we talked a little bit about you know returns in general, some risk associated with it. Obviously, it should be a core part of any portfolio based on you know its it, these attributions. But if we just stick with this point about kind of environments, like all investments go through different environments, what would you say would be a bad environment for uh, for art as an investment? I mean, the, the risk that, that we see, and it, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, when we talked about this risk three years ago, people didn't really think it was a risk. I, I think it's more of a risk today, but it's just anything that, that targets that, that top 1%. And you know we're we're seeing we're seeing governments globally start to refocus policies on on the top one percent. I mean, in New York City, there's there's a proposed you know billionaire tax right now. Things like that could potentially hurt the art market. Yeah. Well, we have a U.S. election shortly, so that might uh, be an interesting uh, time to to watch for a change in how billionaires are treated. I guess. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There, there was um, many of your listeners who invest in real estate are probably familiar, at least in the U.S., with 1031 exchanges. And that was the biggest policy change that happened in the art market when the, the Trump tax laws went into effect. And they, they basically eliminated 1031 exchanges from the art market. And, you know, 1031s are this way to effectively take gain in a particular painting and then roll it into another purchase without actually paying tax. Um, so you can effectively just roll forward your gain in, indefinitely. We thought that that would have had an impact on the art market, and a lot of, of art art lawyers who work in the market that do these 1031 exchanges thought the same. We didn't we didn't really see any impact on prices, so it didn't impact people buying and it didn't impact people selling, which I think is a good sign. And and maybe that just speaks to the fact that 
there's so much money in the top 1%, people are just, it, it's just not impacting behavior. Yeah, no, it, it, true. And, and another thing that actually I think a lot of people have been surprised about is just the uh, the reaction in the real estate market. I'm not a specialist in that, but what I have noticed is that that has not um, had any sort of a significant price decrease, despite the fact that uh, there's been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unemployment uh, showing up. So, so you're right. I mean, we see these oddities from time to time. I also wanted to ask you a little bit. I mean, I guess in in like in in our industry, the kind of the hedge fund world, where suddenly one strategy or a manager become the flavor of the month. I mean, is, do you see the same in the art world with an artist or a type of art where you know everybody runs towards the same? It's a, it's an excellent question. So the the short answer is yes, depending on the segment of the market. So we definitely see a lot of artists that that are kind of selling in the sub you know, $100,000 per painting range that come into favor, fall out of favor, that segment of the market, you know, we, we, we feel like it's very volatile. Like we, we, we risk rate that segment of the market kind of a, a C risk rating without getting into kind of our risk profiles. Um, and, and we almost entirely avoid it today for investors. But if you look at the top 100 artists, and I, I mentioned earlier that the top 100 artists constitute 64% of the market overall, Interestingly, in the past 20 years, there's only been three artists that have fallen out of favor. And when I say out of favor, I just simply mean generated um, negative returns. And those artists are, are Damien Hurst, uh, Jeff Koons, and Murakami. And there's different reasons for, for each of those markets why, why they've, they've declined. But, you know, in short, we would say that they've, they've, they were effectively fabricated. They were propped up by a handful of investors that couldn't sustain the prices and they collapsed. So, you know, it's art isn't very interesting store value. And we we just also subsequently after our correlation study with Citigroup published a report on kind of art versus gold and how we think about store value characteristics between between those two. And and what we what we found is that when we look at loss rate, loss rate measured as loss rate on a on a uh, trailing three year average and then magnitude of loss when a loss does occur, art compares favorably to gold. So we, you know, we continue to think it's a really interesting asset class. Again, the, the main drawback is just the lack of liquidity. Manipulating a market in art is not that different from uh, what we see in the uh, in the stock market or any other financial market, to be frank. So yeah. I think that comes with the territory. So I want to shift gear a bit and I want to talk how you at Masterworks actually make investments in art and what kind of art that you focus on. And of course, how your investors participate in these investments. But before I do that, I can't help thinking of something that we often say to our own investors when it comes to the benefit of running a rules-based investment strategy that I represent. And that is, you should never fall in love with your own positions. So uh, now, how how can you avoid that in your side of the uh, industry? Well, I guess, I guess, I, I mean, I think if you talk to any prior girlfriend I've ever had, she would just say that's my personality. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we are very, we're a very data-driven team. Uh, when we think about acquiring a painting, I guess there's a there's a two-step process that we go through. One is we analyze the data that I referred to. And by the way, uh, for your investors that really want to get hands-on with data, you can actually go to the masterworks.io website, click on price database, and we publish all of the data 
that we have on the market to to anyone on the Masterworks platform. So we're big believers in collecting data on the asset class and then just publishing it for free because we think that's what's really really required to to get people to buy in to allocating to art. So the first thing we do is we look at we look at data on the art market overall and we really decide on an annual basis which artists do we think are most investable. And when when I say most investable, and I'm really talking about absolute return and risk adjusted return. And there's two different two different buckets that that we guide people to in terms of absolute return. One is what we refer to as our A risk bucket. It tends to be high single digit, kind of low double digit returns. These are artists like Basquiat, Warhol, etc. Um, then the other bucket is is what we refer to as our B risk bucket, and these are kind of mid teen returns, but but more more volatility. Now, interestingly, when you look at the sharp ratio between those two buckets, it's basically the same. So there's not a right or a wrong answer, but we do have investors that just have absolute return preferences based on based on their portfolio. So we we this year have come up with I think 44 artists that we think are most investable out of I don't know several hundreds if not thousands of artists. And we then take that list from our research team and hand it off to our acquisitions team who goes out and finds basically every example um, by those artists that they can. So I think, I think you know, as of today, we were actively tracking something like 1,100 paintings from those 44 artists that we've been in negotiation on. And then we're, we're purchasing now roughly one, uh, one to $10 million painting every week. And, and that's, that's effectively how we, how we think about sourcing works. Sure. No, no. And in terms of the, I mean, obviously the, 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 the auction houses, as you uh, uh, mentioned earlier, of course, where you can get very easy kind of data from. I was just curious, in terms of uh, anyone buying a painting as a private collector from a gallery, does, does that transaction ever become public or... It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, you know, okay. galleries sell. It's, it's so interesting. I mean, galleries sell work in a very different way than we talk about art. Right. I mean, how, how we're talking about art right now never happens in the art market ever. Right. You walk into a gallery, you stand in front of a 10 million dollar painting and the gallery will talk about cultural significance of the artist. They'll talk about, you know, what other paintings similar to that painting uh, are selling for today. But they never they never talk about returns, which we think is is strange. I mentioned to you before we pressed record today that I wanted to talk about art in as much uh, of the same kind of uh, using the same terminology that we do uh, generally when it comes to to investing. So, uh, and this is obviously from pure ignorance on my side, but we talked about the liquidity and, and how that comes from, say, auction houses and so on and so forth. But what does it actually cost? I mean, and the one thing that we think a lot about is commissions, right? But, but is there kind of a standard commission for, for when art is, is traded? Uh, or how, how do we even think about that? So if you go, if you go to, to an auction house, um, Christie's actually is having an evening sale tonight in New York City where you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in art, art will sell. The average commission today for, for paintings, I think over $4 million, is 21 22%. Shock, shockingly high. Um, now, the crazy thing about that is that if you're masterworks or if you're if you're a um, a well-known collector, you can effectively work with the auction house to negotiate most of those commissions away. So, okay. you know, we pay. I don't know. We pay. We we more or less pay flat fee commissions now. A couple hundred thousand dollars per painting that that we're bidding on, um, which works out to be one or two percent in most cases. So it's not. 
I guess it is significant, but it's not it's not as significant as if as if you were an individual kind of navigating the market on your own. Sure, but it's a massive benefit, really. I mean, for the people who buy paint painting or art or invest in art through uh, your platform i mean that in itself i think is is, is quite interesting especially if you have it just so by the way do you pay the if you were not buying through masterworks is it only the buyer who's buy uh, who pays or is it the buyer and the seller i mean again i have no idea it's gen- it's generally the buyer who pays okay um in, in lower dollar lots you know if you're selling a twenty-five thousand dollar painting the seller may pay May pay a fee okay. as well, but but gen- generally it's the buyer. But yeah, I mean, one of the great things about working working with Masterworks is we we obviously do negotiate away those commissions, and we also have tax advantage structures where you're, where you're not paying sales tax or use tax. So that that in itself winds up being a big a big number. Yeah. Now you mentioned you have a research team, and if you want to, feel free to sort of talk a little bit about that. Um, you have mentioned you have an acquisition team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the question I wanted to get to was actually, so when you look, you sit down and you look for the next year, these are the artists you're interested in, these are, might be the specific paintings you're interested in. Do you try to work out in advance, say, I'm, we're willing to pay this amount for the for the painting so that you don't get too excited and pay too much during the actual auction for that uh, piece of art? Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is, is we're just seeing so many more paintings today than we're buying. So if we take you know a particular artist that we like, like whatever Basquiat, you know we're tracking thirty Basquiats and we're buying one every four months. So you know we're very selective about about what we buy and at what price we buy. And like any asset class, I mean the the entry price does dictate returns. So you know how much you pay for something obviously obviously matters. Yeah. No, absolutely. And um, yeah, you also, and this is what I again liked about kind of the, your some of the things that I've uh, read up before our conversation today. I mean, you use a lot of the terminology also generally that is used in, in, in the investment world. I mean, you th- I think you talk about emerging artists and I don't know if you use the word developed artists, but of course that's what we would think about as markets. Um, maybe even blue chip uh, versus startup. I'm not sure whether that applies, but but uh, but. but Talk a little bit about how you kind of um, look at the, the because it, the market must be vast and very different, but then you want to kind of categorize it, I imagine. Yeah, we, we try to categorize it in terms that people relate to. I mean, these are more or less our terms, right? So we, we've, there's, no, there's not really anyone else in the art market doing this. So we, when we refer to blue chip, we, we were basically talking about art created by the top 100 artists. So these are these are the household names that constitute 64% of the art market. Those are artists that have sort of the, the high single-digit returns, low double-digit returns, um, but have a have a lower standard deviation in return. So those are our quote-unquote A-risk artists. And then when we talk about B-risk artists, we're generally talking about what, what is referred to in the art market as mid to late career artists. So they're generally living artists. You know, sometimes they're 90 years old, but they're, they're generally living artists. Uh, they have markets where they generally sell $50 million a year or more. And those are those are what what we consider riskier. They're still not, you know, people in the art market would still regard many of these artists as is not, you know, very established and not risky, but they're riskier. Their their standard deviation returns are higher. And those are kind of the mid mid teen return artists. So that's those are the two segments that we focus on. There there are these emerging segments which um, under our risk classification we would classify as a as a C, and basically that would mean we don't have enough data to conclude one way or another exactly where where they fall on the risk spectrum. 
And those are artists that today we stay away from. I, I mean, we we get requests for these artists all the time. And I, I think the typical investor that likes this segment is sort of someone who's like a venture investor. You know, they want to make 100 bets and hope that one one bet has a has a 100x return or a 25x return. I struggle with that because I, I don't, we, we have a lot of people investing from IRAs. We have a lot of people who are, you know, they're not, we don't have super speculative investors. So we haven't, we haven't really moved into that segment yet, but it's, it's maybe interesting in the future. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I think you mentioned also that, I mean, the sharp ratio doesn't necessarily change a lot between established artists. What about styles? And again, I'm no expert here, but I mean, you have maybe a category like post-war and contemporary art versus, I don't know, modern art or impressionist kind of how does that change anything or? Yeah, so th- this is actually really interesting. Um, what we found is that is that returns follow recency. So very high level, the, the way to think about returns in the art market is that if you, if you invest or if you purchase a, a Rembrandt today, for example, um, or you know, a good Rembrandt, whatever, self-portrait costs roughly $10 million, you will basically sell that painting 20 years from now for $10 million plus inflation maybe. So it's a good store of value, but it's not really going to generate returns. Now, what we do see is that art in today's world after World War II is primarily the most investable segment of the art market. And that art that's created after World War II, right now we, we see returns that are decelerating. So returns follow recency, but in very wide increments. And sort of think of you know the, the acceleration as a bell curve, and then you hit a midpoint, and then it decelerates over time. That entire bell curve effectively is something like 80 years. So it's a very wide increment, and you'll see acceleration from from whatever. Right now, we're seeing acceleration from you know art created in the '90s or early 2000s, kind of into that bell curve, and it will continue to accelerate. And then at some point, it'll peak out and it'll start decelerating. So there's no question that you know you you definitely in the art market today do not want to be investing in art created in the 1700s. There's just not a market for that. It's not fashionable. The demand is far less. Um, but the good news is, is, is fashion just changes over very long periods of time. It doesn't change in five years or three years. Yeah, no, sure. Um, so again, inside your firm, do you operate with something like an investment committee or is it really kind of you as the port kind of, I wouldn't even, I don't know if it's portfolio manager is the right word, but that not say, no, this is it and here's the price we're going to pay you or yeah, no, we, we operate with a um, with an investment committee like framework. Now, now we, you know, it's interesting. So each of these offerings is technically um, a public offering. So very similar to how a company in the U.S. goes public through an S one. We literally purchase a painting, put it into a vehicle, file it with the SEC, and then have the painting qualified. So the you know our governance structure and and kind of um, everything from risk factors etc is is a much higher standard than what you would typically see in in private offerings. So we you know we disclose to investors all the risks. We disclose everything about the painting. We disclose you know any any fees or any anything else. So that you know it's a it's a pretty transparent structure. And do you consider yourself as a kind of a value investor or is there even a thing called momentum in your world? Yeah. So, we, you know, I, I would actually say that the crazy thing about the art market today is you can be both. Right. I mean, it, right. it, the, yeah. the, the, art, the, the art market is such in its infancy. There, there's just not there's not people like us that are operating in the market today. 
you know, there's there's collectors. Like tonight, for example, if you go to the, this Christie's evening sale that'll sell several hundreds of millions of dollars in art, you'll sit next to collectors who have what a particular, in t- tonight's sale, it's mainly post-war art. So you'll have post-war collectors there that own, you know, paintings by Pollock and Rothko and that, you know, someone's trying to buy a de Kooning. And they've wanted a de Kooning for 15 years and the de Kooning that they want is up for sale tonight. There's not... There's not people like us sitting in the audience that are happy buying anything at a certain price, um, depending on you know the artist market and the return profile. So we we believe that I mean everything that we're bringing to investors today we think is a great value, and in in many cases we we think there's momentum behind the artists. I mean there's certainly artists that we have brought to the platform like we have brought a Claude Monet where you know there's no there's no momentum behind his market. It's very predictable. You know even even someone like Basquiat I would say is not. You know, accelerating in returns, but he has generated 17 or 18 percent returns for 20 or 25 years now. So very predictable, not accelerating, but still pretty, pretty incredible. So, yeah, it's 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 just there's so much opportunity in the art market compared to to other asset classes. Sure. I mean, in my world, I come from what's called the trend following world where we just look at data and we just, uh, you know, uh, invest according to the data. And I'm, I'm so I'm waiting for the day when there's actually a kind of a trend following the art market. And maybe some of the listeners today will uh, take you up on, on uh, start analyzing all the data that you put up on your website and, and come up with some good rules for uh, investing in some of these uh, in some of these artists. Now, you know, another thing which is super important in the world of investing is, of course, time horizon. And I don't know what you typically advise or talk to your clients about uh, when it comes to, to, to time horizon in, in terms of art. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it takes a while to generate returns in the art market today. So we tell people to think of holding an investment somewhere between three and seven years, it's it's highly unlikely that we buy a painting and we sell a painting in a year. It's just how the art market works is very difficult to do for a whole bunch of reasons. So so at a minimum, I, I would think of these as, as three-year liquid holds. It can go up to seven years, and then we, we have a... We have a, essentially a feature where if we can't sell it at seven years, we can extend that sale process by another two years. Now, all of that being said, one of the things that we, we focus on heavily as a team and, and as, an, as an organization is building out trading markets for these securities. So we did launch um, secondary markets for these securities something like four or five months ago. Um, so, so while those markets are still relatively early, you know, we do fundamentally believe in a world where investors can trade securities in these in these underlying assets just like they they trade shares in, in a public company yeah no i think that's very interesting and obviously you're obviously in the in the forefront of of all of that and i guess that's where your tech background is very useful uh you mentioned earlier that damien hurst had been in in my speak in a bit of a downtrend uh recently uh, do you ever use the concept of kind of a stop loss where you say okay i bought this painting but actually hmm it's it you know it's going below what i think uh is comfortable and and so i just want to get out is that even a concept in your world you know, I mean, luckily we we, we haven't, we, you know, knock on wood, we haven't had that that issue yet. I, I, it just it, in the art market, you don't, it, you know, I mentioned before, there's out, out of the top 100 artists, there's only been three over the past 20 years that have generated negative returns. So unless you unless you make a mistake, and I would really just describe it as an error, right? Like unless you make an error buying, you, you know, you buy something that for whatever reason you just massively overpay for it. It's hard to lose significant amounts of principal. 
I think what I tell investors is I, I would think about the return profile as as riskier than than sort of the the, the principle. You know, we we just don't we don't see a lot of people buy Monet paintings for twenty million dollars and turn around and sell them for five. It just doesn't really happen. Now, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but I know we have a few more uh, minutes left. So I do want to turn the kind of the spotlight a little bit about sort of more specifics in terms of how uh, people can become an investor in art. And of course, you're offering one uh, opportunity. But I think one of the first questions, uh, I mean, when people hear, oh, should, should I invest in art? I mean, the first thing they obviously think of, I'm sure, is that that's going to set me back, you know, a million dollars plus, And and that's, uh, you know, will preclude a lot of people. But just describe a little bit more how you have overcome that. How are you actually making this a very accessible investment opportunity for, for many people? And even maybe you want to touch upon the fact whether or not you need to be an accredited investor to participate. Sure. Yeah. So we we made a very deliberate decision um, starting Masterworks to to make all of these investment opportunities as, as public offerings, meaning that both retail investors as well as accredited investors can can invest. So anyone uh, both in the U.S. or or abroad can invest in these offerings. You know, in addition to that, another benefit of having these these offerings be qualified public offerings is we can run trading markets where people can trade trade securities in them. So that that was a a deliberate decision. And, you know, in terms of, of minimums, we always get the question, you know, what is the minimum investment? Um, we, we really work with any investors. So we require that every investor before investing have a call with their membership team, um, talk about their investment objectives, talk about their portfolio. We'll walk walk them through how to think about allocation, how to think about what segment of the market is right based on their, their portfolio and their objectives. Um, but ultimately, we, we work with, with any investor and you know, our, our goal is to really democratize this asset class and make it investable by by anyone. Sure, sure. Now, in order to get to that point, of course, you will have gone through uh, an SEC re- registration, I imagine. And I can't help that there's been many firms like you before that they've had to deal with at the SEC in this uh, <laughs> in this area. So I'm just curious, were, what were the main challenges, so to speak, from their side, but maybe also from your side, to kind of tick all the boxes? I mean, there's no challenges. We love regulators. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, so the, the the very first the very first offering we filed with the SEC was a uh, was a long process. So it you know it took I think uh, something like fifteen months to get the investment vehicle through the SEC. Lots of different rounds of commenting. Uh, part of that was was our fault. We you know we we didn't exactly know the ideal structure and kept trying to to fine tune it over time. But I would say today that the cadence of these offerings and working with the SEC. Um, has, has been much improved. So, you know, now we're, we're getting one offering qualified approximately every week. We're one of the largest filers of, uh, of kind of small cap public offerings there are. Um, so the cadence, the cadence is, has definitely, definitely improved. You know, that being said, I mean, g- government agencies are not, at least in the U.S., I think probably most everywhere, they're, they're not set up to handle really what, what someone like Masterworks is doing. I mean, they're not set up to sort of process one public offering a week from one issuer. Um, so we're, we're definitely pushing the envelope there. But, but I think over time, we'll, we'll see that improve as, as sort of alternative assets in general um, become more securitized at an, at an individual underlying level, uh, more tradable, and so on. 
Yeah, no. Now, on my side, I spend a lot of time, if not the majority of my time, doing kind of what I would say investor education uh, on kind of systematic investment strategy. And I, I know how overwhelming that can be when you enter a new asset class. I mean, it's difficult to know where to start or maybe where to end and who to trust. How can investors take a few steps to kind of filter out some of that noise? Are there any resources or anything that you would point in in a, in a direction you would point them at? Yeah, so we have, uh, we, we publish a quarterly report from our research team on how we think about the art market generally. Um, we partner with a lot of private banks to do third-party research as well. So we, we have links on our website to, to, to those different research pieces. Uh, and then I would also say, we, you know, we try to present offerings in a, in a standardized way that makes sense to investors. We risk rate them. We publish historical returns. They can see a third-party appraisal on every single painting. They can decide um, based on, on very simple data how they, how they feel about that investment. So we, we try to make it as easy as possible. So you can either spend a lot of time diving in or you can spend very little time diving in. It's, it's really up to the investor. Yeah, and of course, the investors in your case would, at the moment at least, have to kind of commit to one specific paintings. But have you ever thought about doing a fund where you would say, okay, I'm going to diversify the risk for all of these investors and have 10 or 20 paintings? Because I can imagine it might be a little bit difficult for people to decide on a specific painting unless they know a lot about art. Yeah, so we, you know, the short answer is yes. We 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 like the idea of fund-like offerings um, over time. You know, today, I think most people are approaching portfolio construction simply by uh, looking at the return profile, looking at the risk profile, and then essentially just diversifying amongst paintings. But, but I think there's no question that for more sophisticated investors, and particularly just maybe not even more sophisticated, maybe investors that just want to be more hands-off, that fund offerings make, make sense. In terms of once you have all these paintings and as you grow, you're going to get more and more paintings, um, you're going to have to store them. Um, I don't know if this is even a concept, but instead of having to store them kind of uh, uh, away from everyone, would there even be an opportunity to say, we're going to rent the paintings out to a museum so that the investors could earn a little bit of a carry or, or interest? It's a great question. We we had a lot of interest pre pre COVID from real estate development firms that would typically buy paintings as part of like a luxury condo project, who who were interested in, in, in instead just renting paintings. You know, it's very hard today to figure out how scalable that how scalable that is or or how much demand there is for that. So I think right now it's not it's not really really an opportunity for us, but it, it could be in the future. Museums or institutions are very difficult to work with. Like we, we think it's unlikely that they would ever pay to rent paintings just because they don't have an allocation in their budget for it. One of the unique things that's happened during COVID, which we didn't expect, is we actually now have institutions reaching out to us who are interested in deaccessioning. So a lot of museums have just been hurt because they don't have the ticket revenue that they used to have from COVID. So now they're trying to figure out ways to fund their operating budget and the mm -hmm. most the most rational way is to sell paintings. There's a unique structure where we could have a museum effectively sell us a painting. We could have investors invest in the painting and then the painting could stay on the museum's wall mm -hmm. until it eventually sells, which maybe is a more more friendly way for institutions to think about deaccessioning than, than what they've thought about in the past. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Masterworks, obviously, I'm sure is growing a lot. Capacity is a, is, is a question we get a lot of in our industry. Is there anything that kind of uh, capacity-wise where you can see people like Masterworks, but even maybe if you get a little bit of competition at some point, becoming too large to operate in a market, as you say, that is not obviously as liquid as you see in, in other public markets i mean the, the best analogy that i that i love to make that i make at least once a day is that you know you think about the art market art as an asset class is 1.7 trillion dollars right that's a number that's published by deloitte has been more or less confirmed by sotheby's last year 68 billion dollars in art sold so think of it as a couple percent turnover every year compare that to venture and private equity which is three and a half trillion dollars there's 6,000 firms that operate in venture private equity late stage buyout whatever that help people allocate to the asset class. In the art market, there's nobody. <laughs> there's there's right. masterworks, right? So you have an asset class that's that's literally half as large as venture private equity, and there's no way to invest in it. So we don't, you know, it's very easy for us to continue buying billions of dollars in art over time, just based on the size of the asset class. So we don't we don't see any capacity constraint issues. Sure. I have one final question of the, the more sort of business-like questions. And I've got a few kind of personal and fun questions for you before <laughs> I, I let you go, Great. just to keep you on your toes here. Just out of curiosity, when you, when you look at your investor base and where you see generally demand coming from, what type of investors and, and geographically, are there any trends in, in, in what you see? You know, it's interesting. Today, most of our investors um, are from the U.S., although I, 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 we spent an enormous amount of time and energy making sure that all these vehicles are tax efficient for people outside of the U.S. So um, each artwork actually sits in a, in a Cayman entity, and, and whenever it's sold, it's 100% passed through to, to anyone living outside of the U.S. So it's a perfectly tax efficient way for non-U.S. persons to to invest. You know, I would I would say most people are in the US. The average investor is investing something like six or seven thousand dollars per painting and maybe in five or six paintings now. A lot of our cohorts are still maturing, so it's difficult for us to tell how those investor profiles mature over time. Sure. Sure. But it's you know it's something like that. I mean the average investor is investing twenty five thousand dollars, thirty five thousand dollars is a part of their portfolio. We have investors for investing $250,000, $250,000, we have investors who are investing $2,500, but that's kind of the, the the average profile. Sure. No. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Now, as I said, I just wanted to finish off with a couple of more sort of personal and fun questions. And the first one I would love to know is, what was the first painting that you ever bought and what age was that? <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I was successful really young. Um, kind of with the whole with the whole dot com internet boom. So I, I my very first painting. Well, so I, I I've actually written a blog post on this. So there 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 were there were multiple things that I collected at a young age, many of which were not what I would consider good investments today. Uh, but the the f- very first important painting is this artist named Mark Chagall. Uh, the title of the painting was Le Pont Neuf. You know, I probably paid back then something like. $250,000 of the painting when I was 19 years old. It, it, you know, I thought it was a great painting back then. Yeah, but, you know, you, I don't know. I, I think my taste has evolved since then. You know, I'm collecting different things today, but... Sure. Yeah. Of course. No, but it's nice to know where it all got started. Now, another thing that that uh, certainly in, 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 in the traditional uh, world, I think, is something that comes up, and that is kind of 
Is there anything that keeps you up at night? I mean, is there any risk or event business-wise or market-wise that you, that you worry about? You know, it's it's really just sort of the, the talk, at least in the U.S., of a lot of these wealth taxes, right? So, right. you know, and that's not anything specific to the art market, but it but it does concern me on multiple levels without without yeah. going into politics. But you know, we do have a lot of a lot of what I would consider very extreme proposals now that essentially take away a lot of the wealth or a lot of the gain from anyone that has a net worth above X. Um, and you know, I I, I do. I can see that hurting lots of industries, right? Like even even the current proposal in the U.S., um, the current Democratic um, tax proposal, where cap gain rates match ordinary income rates. You know, I don't know what happens if that passes. I, do people just stop selling assets for the next four years? I, I don't know. So some of some of that is at least in today's yeah, world. Yeah, political concerning. risk is that's a tough one. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, I also wanted to ask you what what are the questions you think that potential investors should be asking your team? Things that may not come up so often, but that you actually think are really important. I think the most important thing as well, there's two questions really when you're when you're investing in art, um, at least through Masterworks. One is what should your overall allocation be? And that allocation number, we, we've run asset allocation models internally, and we, we also did it with uh, Citigroup as part of that correlation report that I mentioned. And the, the allocation range is huge, right? On the very low end, for people that have a low tolerance for illiquid assets, it's roughly 1.8%. On the very high end, it's roughly 8%. So a key question is, what, what is your tolerance for illiquidity? And then the second question is, once you decide what the, the overall allocation should be, which of the two risk buckets make most sense? Is it, is it risk bucket A or is it risk bucket B? And as I mentioned, the sharp ratios are basically the same. So it's not, there's not a right decision or a wrong decision. It's just what sort of risk are you, are you willing to take and, and what kind of returns are you, are you, you know, aiming for as part of your overall portfolio? Sure. No, I think that's that's uh, super important. Now, final one. It's a little bit different, Scott. So bear with me here, because I want you to finish this statement for me. Okay. So here we go. <laughs> I know I'm being successful when. I know I'm being successful when everyone has an allocation art. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> now we've come to the uh, end of my long list of questions, but I want to make sure we covered all the important points. So let me just ask you if there is something that I missed and that I should have uh, asked you today, Scott. No, I, I mean I, I think that's I, th I think we covered everything. I, I mentioned briefly that we we do have secondary markets now that are available to investors. So. For those people that aren't necessarily interested in, in kind of you know focusing on you know allocating a portion of their portfolio to art overall, you can always just go in the secondary market, um, buy shares, play around with with that as well. Like we're as a company, we're very excited about that because we obviously recognize that if you if you look at just the characteristics of art as an asset class, you can pretty easily conclude that everyone should allocate to it. But the number one objection continues to be liquidity. People that just aren't aren't able to wait. A handful of years to recognize a return. So a big focus is how do how do we build out trading markets for for interim liquidity? Yeah. No, I mean that that's very important. Uh, now, Scott, this has been uh, quite a fascinating journey into the world of art. I mean, before we finish, of course, uh, do tell the audience where they can learn more about Masterworks and the investment opportunities that you offer, and also any suggestions that you know places where they can go and educate themselves if it's not on your own website. 
Yeah, so I think in, in terms of third-party research, um, obviously you can you can look at the research that we've done with other third parties on our website, www.masterworks.io. But you can also uh, look at other third-party sources. So we like a firm called ArtPrice that we think is a is a great third-party resource that publishes lots of um, lots of research on the art market. And then if you're if you're interested in getting started, you know, I just encourage everyone to come to the website. Schedule a call with our membership team, which you know is almost always available sometime in the next the next three or four days. Speak about your portfolio, speak about your investment objectives, and and just get get started investing in in one offering, and then you know grow up from there. Fantastic. On that note, let's wrap up this fascinating conversation. Scott, thanks so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and experience with me. It's been fascinating to hear your story. And as I often say, it's so important to have practitioners like you share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something away from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, Please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in the world of finance and investing. From me, Niels Kastrolarsen, thanks for listening and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources that you can find on our website. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged. 